in these testing of times, we reach out to sources of solace and understanding. We're fortunate that our ancient Hindu sages have passed on a, a treasure of wisdom through our sacred scriptures. And these scriptures aren't just textbooks, but what we call darshan. Darshan because they give new insights, a new perspective, new vision in which, with which to see the world, to make sense of it, and help us understand our place in it and how we can navigate through life's challenges. It's timeless because this wisdom, yes, it talks about eternal realities such as God and the soul, but equally it speaks to the human condition and how we can grapple with day-to-day -day challenges just as much as we try to work through our quest to moksha the eternal liberation from the perpetual cycles, cycle of death and life. This wisdom from our ancient scriptures, whether it's the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Gita, the Mahabharata or the Ramayana, it transcends time and geography. It doesn't just belong to Hindus or Indians. It's applicable to people of every nation, of every creed, of every generation. And so, and, and that is why we have seen great thinkers from all over the world not just be impressed by our Hindu scriptures, but take them to heart. The eminent German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer famously said after his study of the Upanishads that they would be, they provided solace in his life and would provide solace in his death. In these times when we need, we look to sources of solace and comfort to help us elevate ourselves, to transcend the, the, the turmoil that we're facing. We will look to our scriptures every week and see how they can impart this much-needed universal wisdom and provide some sort of stability and poise um, in this time of um, turmoil and uncertainty. We'll begin this week with the Mahabharata. It's an epic tale, one of the, the longest, probably the longest poem in the world, um, with around 100,000 verses. Someone's calculated that to 1.8 million words. It's captured the imagination for generations of readers, writers, thinkers, because it's a, a tale of of love and betrayal, of, of family feuding, of political intrigue and infighting. And its universal teachings speak to us because of what they te teach us about family and relationships. It said in, in ancient India, what was in the Mahabharata could be found everywhere and what wasn't in the Mahabharata could not be found anywhere else. Yad iha asti tad anyat yannaha asti natat kvachit. So this universal wisdom, um, almost like an encyclopedia of life and relations, comes to us as essentially a story of 
two feuding um, families, cousins, the five Pandavas and the hundred Kauravas. We pick up the story on the 13th day. Duryodhan had quickly realized that there's no way the, the Kauravas would be able to overcome the Pandavas. And um, they realized they had to take a different approach. Now, the powerhouse of the Pandavas was actually Arjun. And Duryodhan realized that there's no way through sheer military brute force that they'd be able to win over and vanquish Arjun. He was just too strong, too skillful of an archer and a warrior. And so he thought, that, well, what really is the weak spot that Arjun has? He realized it's actually his son, Abhimanyu. If we could somehow get to Abhimanyu and kill him off, that would severely impede Arjun's ability to, to fight. And so Duryodhan and his fellow warriors, they conducted, concocted a plan to vanquish Abhimanyu. They knew Abhimanyu. Now, Abhimanyu was actually also the nephew of Krishna because Arjun was married to Krishna's sister, Subhadra. So they knew that if by killing Abhimanyu, they would be um, hurting Arjun as well as Krishna, Arjun's charioteer. Arjun, uh, Abhimanyu, the Kauravs knew that through the various formations of war, there was this particular formation called the Chakravyu, the, the discus formation, which uh, Abhimanyu could enter because of his previous knowledge, but couldn't exit alone. And so they, they hatched this plan in a way that Duryodhan and especially Jaidrath, he was the king of Sindh. He was the brother-in-law of the Kauravs. The Kauravs, the hundred Kauravs had one sister, Dushala. She was married to Jaidrath. Jaidrath's job was to storm and hold back the Pandavas, especially Arjun. And while Duryodhan lured Abhimanyu into this formation, all the warriors, now Abhimanyu fought valiantly, valiantly. And he tried to do his best to um, stave off the, the opposition. But he was alone. And as he entered deeper and deeper into this Chakravyu, he was encircled by all the, the Gauravs. And eventually, as, as hard as he fought, the, the Gauravs combated together to kill off Abhimanyu. It was quite unfair, quite contrary to the rules of war. But Abhimanyu was killed and news of this reached Arjun. As you can imagine, Arjun was absolutely distraught. He was heartbroken, grief-stricken. That his son, Abhimanyu, had been killed unfairly. That's what hurt him. That the Kauravs, against the rules of war, had killed his son. And so, as rage erupted in his heart, Arjun took a pledge. He pledged that tomorrow, on the 14th day of battle, I pledge that by sunset, I will kill Jaidrat. Because he was responsible primarily for the death of my son. And if I don't kill Jaidrat, I will self-immolate. I will walk into a pyre of fire and commit suicide. Now, this was a, a hefty pledge. And when news of this reached the Goros, they too shuddered at the thought 
or what was going to ensue on the next day. It was either going to be Jaydrat or Arjun. Now, as these thoughts of what was going to happen and how they would be able to stave off this great onslaught that's going to be facing them tomorrow, Jaydrat and Duryodhan both went to their mentor, Dronacharya. And it's a fascinating dialogue in the, in the Mahabharat that ensues between Dronacharya and Duryodhan. Duryodhan asks a question, it's a very important question, and, and Dronacharya acknowledges that he says, your question is very important, but it's rather late. Dronacharya says that you should have asked this question before the battle began. Duryodhan's question is, why is it? What is the difference between Arjun and me? Duryodhan, as he's wallowing in his self-pity, Dronacharya explains, look, you should have asked this question before the battle began because for them, victory has always been certain because of two things, two reasons. And the first reason he gives is that the Pandavas know hardship. They were born in a forest, in the jungle. They've had to endure great challenges throughout their childhood, throughout their life. Whereas you, he's telling Duryodhan, you were born in the lap of luxury. You were born with a, a, a diamond-encrusted golden spoon in your mouth. You've, you don't know what hardship is, what it means to endure and intolerate. But the, because the Pandavas are hardy, of strong-mindedness, their resilience will see them through this battle. It's resilience in this most testing of moments which allow us to rise to a higher level. Resilience is the capacity to recover, to bounce back from setbacks, to face hardships with a smile. Because it's in those moments of trial and challenge that we truly grow and learn about ourselves. Bhagavan Swaminar in his teachings um, encapsulated in the Vachnavrat. He explains in uh, one of his sermons, Garada section 1, number 74, that adversity introduces a person to themselves. Our true measure comes not in times of comfort and convenience, but in challenge and contempt. Who we really are is determined how we respond to these challenges. So we should never be afraid of struggle. It helps us grow. It helps us become stronger. There's, a, there's an anecdote or rather a story from a book I read many years ago. A story of the metamorphosis of a caterpillar to a butterfly. There was a biology class and a teacher had kept out an, an experiment and to show the students how this dramatic change happens from a caterpillar becoming a beautiful butterfly. He set the class to observe as the, the, the caterpillar was struggled to coming out from its pupa, from its kind of cocoon, its, its, its womb. And as he left the class to just observe, he went on to another task. As he came back, he had hoped that the, the, the class would just be observing and see this you know, dramatic change happening. But to his dismay, 
he found that the butterfly was dead on the table. He asked the students, what happened? Did you do anything? The children all were also distraught and they said, no, actually we were trying to help it. We saw it struggling, trying to break through its, its, its cocoon, its, its womb. And in an attempt to help it, we kind of tapped on it to see it, help it break through. The teacher explained, what you thought you were helping, in fact, was quite the opposite. You see, as the caterpillar tries to break through those membranes, it's developing its wings, the muscles in its wings. And it's those wings which allow it to fly. Because you helped it, those muscles couldn't develop as strongly as they should. And so it fell to its death. Struggle helps us develop our emotional strength, our spiritual strength. We go to the gym and we see people who are increasing their muscle tone, turning fat from muscle. In fact, probably we have more time right now to do that more than ever at home at least, if not at the gym, because it's quite important even while we're self-isolating at home that we do take out time for exercise. There's someone, um, as we were discussing with some friends, that by the time this all ends, we'll probably need a vaccine for obesity. That's um, how much we're probably eating um, and lounging around out of boredom rather than out of hunger. Even so, as we exercise, we know it's painful. But we do that because it helps build our muscles. And every time we, we go through the reps, it makes us stronger. In the same way, with every challenge that we face, it's something that makes us stronger. So we should never shy away from these cha challenges. Sometimes we feel that even children, we, we bubble wrap them and from failure and disappointment, from knocks and bruises. But that's life. Growing up with a few cuts, it's in, in a few knocks and bruises, it helps us grow stronger and resilient. Because life is full of failure and disappointment. The path to success literally is littered with failure at every turn. Take this Monday, for example. We're sitting here um, broadcasting from the Nizan Temple. Internationally acclaimed people from all over the world are appreciating its architecture, its beauty, its tranquility, its messages of peace and charity. But it came to be after many years of struggle. His Holiness Brahmakusai Maharaj when he had envisioned, in fact, it was his guru, Yogiji Maharaj, in 1970, who had envisioned this traditional temple in the heart of London. Pramukhsai Maharaj fulfilled that vision, but it took many, many years. In fact, it was 28 attempts at finding a site suitable. At, at every turn, there would be so many ways that, you know, it didn't work out. There was not enough money. We were outbid. There were legal questions. There were people... Um, opposing because of traffic problems, so many different ways that Brahmakusai Maharaj faced failure and disappointment. But each time, he was undeterred. He bounced back from each failure and saw that each way would help them improve, to learn from their experiences and make a better proposal for a better mandir. And so, even through life, even the small challenges we face, let's enjoy them. We all enjoy a good crossword or a, a Sudoku puzzle. Um, 
even when you play sports, it's no fun just playing football with your young cousins because you know you can overpower them and win. But when you play with your friends, even though you know you could potentially lose, it's the fun, the struggle, the challenge that helps us grow. Jim Whittaker, um, the first American to climb Mount Everest in 1963, in his interview, famously talked about the challenges of, of climbing the, the highest peak in the world. Um, for years, generations, it's, it's brought this fascination to people to reach the, the top of the world. Many, many have tried. Only around 5,000 have actually succeeded. Many have died trying. Many simply don't even return. But those who do are never the same. Jim Whittaker, he famously said, you never conquer the mountain itself, only yourself. We take on the strength, the power of what we overcome. And so these challenges make us stronger in the face of insurmountable odds for, from daunting challenges. We come out stronger. James Whittaker also famously said that if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's not about being reckless, but not shying away from difficulties and challenges. As they say, smooth seas make not a skillful sailor. There will be pressure. There will be exams and there will be job interviews and there will be propositions that could potentially be life-changing. But in those critical moments, if we can be strong-willed and face those challenges with resilience, with a smile, and know that even these moments of pressure, they can be useful to us. It's when what will determine where we crumble under pressure or stay intact, or we become stronger. After all, it's graphite which turns into diamonds. They're both, in their essence, still carbon. But the internal formation of the bonding has changed through years of pressure. So even amid pressure, we can grow. It's through the fairness of life that our future is forged. It's through the crucible of our challenges that our character is crafted. And so today, as the whole world faces this pandemic, how we approach it, how we come out the other end, will be determined by our mindset. Is it a growth mindset? Is it, are we approaching it with resilience? Are we going to come back from whatever setbacks we're facing now, whether it's isolation in our homes, whether it's facing our economy, whether it's facing the whole world. Yes, it's going to take a toll on our mental health, on our relationships. But are we going to come out bitter or better? I believe it's a truly defining moment. If we can approach the next few months with humility and humor, with compassion and community spirit, with prayer and resolve 
and resilience, then the next few months could truly determine who we are as individuals, as a community, as a nation, and as a civilization. And so, our prayer today, in the quest for resilience in our day-to-day challenges, even if we're stuck at home, our prayer is not only that our load is lighter, but that our shoulders are broader. Thank you, and God bless. We'll also be taking a few questions at the end of these talks, uh, as time permits. During this first uh, talk, we'll have time for uh, one question. It's uh, a very important question. Maybe as Hindus, we face often from friends um, and colleagues that, or neighbors that who don't really understand our faith. The question that's come in from somebody from Cambridge, the question is, why are there so many gods in Hinduism? Now, this is a, a common question that Hindus often face. And understanding some of the, the history behind the study of religion helps us understand that where these questions sometimes come from. We have the Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and, and Islam, and they are classified as monotheistic. So mono, one, um, belief in one God, theo, theos. And sometimes those ideas are superimposed onto Hinduism. Now, Hinduism itself is difficult to understand. It's so nebulous in the sense that it's not one monolithic faith with one founder, one book, um, you know, one organization, one magisterium which decrees doctrines and rules. It's probably better understood like a family of religious traditions. And each one, like in a family, there'll be siblings which resemble each other more closely. Uh, there'll be members which are more estranged and, and quite distant. In Hinduism, so we have these different what we call sampradays, traditions. And we see in them that each of the sampradays will have their own Ishtadev, a god, Bhagwan, which they believe to be the supreme. So when we see Hinduism from afar and we see all these different sampradays, and we see, oh, why are there so many gods? And there are millions of devtas and all these people that you worship. But actually, if you understand Hinduism in its totality, within these different sampradays, they worship one supreme god. So for them, they do, for them it is actually quite monotheistic. However, in saying they're monotheistic, even though if those labels could apply to Hinduism, it doesn't fully appreciate the wider concept of Hinduism, where even though there may be one supreme entity, Parabrahma Purushottam, for the Swaminarayan Sampradaya, that may be, that's Bhagwan Swaminarayan. For others, it might be Shri Krishna Bhagwan or Shri Ramchandra Bhagwan or whoever else. But even among that, there are what we call Devtas. These are the divine beings who are empowered by Purushottam, who are entrusted with the, the, the managing, with executive powers to manage the universe. And so though, because Bhagwan, he sits so, he reigns supreme over the whole universe, it's these devtas who oversee 
the functioning of the universe through its, whether it's the Surya Dev, Chandra Dev, Varun Dev, Indra Dev, etc. So even those dev devatas exist and we pay homage to them, we respect them, our ultimate worship and ultimate allegiance and reverence, adoration, is always aligned to the Ishtadev, the Supreme Being. So in that sense, it is monotheistic because we believe in one supreme entity whom we worship. But it doesn't mean we're not polytheistic either in the sense that the theos, how we define that, is not the supreme entity, but these different deities, these different devtas, which we still revere and thankful to for overseeing our world and its smooth functioning. So in this way, we can understand how Hinduism um, is quite complex. It's not so easily compartmentalized or can be shoved into boxes and labels that we sometimes see in the West. But when we see it in a more nuanced way, we can understand it with its true richness and how people can worship their own devata, the Ishtadev, in their own language, with their own cultures, because India itself is so diverse through north and south and east and west. Its cultural festivals, its culture of, of, of worship, its, its um, occasions of celebration, of observances of fasts, its rules, its tenets, its scriptures, together make for a, a great vivid tapestry of religion that when it comes together is what we call Hinduism.